Welcome back to the Building Builders Podcast, a podcast made for contractors. Today's guest is Grant Hilders, a professional engineer with more than 25 years of experience in designing and constructing large infrastructure projects. Currently, Grant is the executive leader accountable for the execution of the engineering and construction oversight for the Gordie Howe International Bridge Project, a multi-billion dollar international crossing between Windsor, Ontario and Detroit, Michigan. In this episode, Kevin and Grant discuss the Gordie Howe International Bridge in greater detail. Topics include why the bridge's cable stayed, how the project has changed since the initial research in the early 2000s, and just how much labor and equipment is needed to complete a project of this magnitude. Don't forget to subscribe to the episode, and now let's get into the podcast. Grant, it's so nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Kevin. (laughs) I've uh, I've really been uh, looking forward to this. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, join our Building Builders uh, podcast. Um, I think this should be a really great chat. Yeah, I'm happy happy to be here. I always love talking about this project. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so, Grant, maybe uh, just to start things off, if uh, if you could share with myself and our listeners a little bit more about you know yourself and kind of leading up to uh, being a part of this project. Uh, so I'm, I'm currently the chief capital uh, officer for the Windsor Detroit Bridge Authority. So we're we're the entity that is is responsible for overseeing the design and construction of the Gordie Howard International Bridge. So I came over to this project uh, just about seven years ago. Um, I've always worked in the region uh, and gone to school in the region. So uh, born in Windsor, uh, still living in Windsor, uh, but I spent quite a bit of time working on the Detroit side of. Uh, of the river also. So I've, I've got a, uh, a bachelor's and master's in environmental and civil engineering from the University of Windsor. Uh, so I've always been interested in construction since a young age. Um, and I was working over in Detroit and the opportunity came up to, to come over and work on this, this great project. And uh, so I took that opportunity. I've been crossing the existing bridge and tunnel uh, my entire life with relatives on both sides of the border. So. Uh, Having an opportunity to work on this once in a generation project was just uh, too much of an appeal not to come over here. It sounds like such an interesting uh, uh, project. Um, <clears throat> I've got to ask you a, a quick question. When you, it's so interesting that it's crossing the border. Are you like? Do you go through customs a number of times a day, or is it once you're on the job site, uh, you're okay and you don't have to go through customs? How does that work? So, so we've got construction crews on either side of the border, uh, but uh, people like myself and many others that are involved in the oversight of the project do cross on a regular basis. So if, if I've got to go to a meeting in Detroit or see something on the Detroit side, you, you've got to go through customs and, uh, and clear and go over and work there. Uh, we have quite a few staff that cross over uh, uh, any given day. Um, right. And interestingly enough, once the bridge is connected, even before traffic uh, comes through, uh, they, we, they will have to establish a customs border. So we'll have workers right. crossing through to finish it because you can't have the connection without uh, without the, uh, the, the border services set up on either side. Right. Yeah, no, that's super, super interesting. Um, <clears throat> you must have to bid that into the project. I could imagine just the extra delays in the, in the border. Or maybe you guys all have Nexus and you're able to fly through. Um, many people do have Nexus. Um, you know, I think the, the, uh, the border agencies uh, uh, know the projects going on and, and uh, the uh, uh, Bridging North America, our private partner, knew coming in that it was a cross-border right. project. But uh, 
you know, labor, a uh, large portion of, of, the, of the workers are located in either Canada or the U.S., but we do have, like I said, we do have management staff and people that uh, just have to be on either side for any given meeting or, or an inspection. So it does, having an international project, especially a project of this side, does pose its own own challenges, but we've been able to work through those over the last uh, uh, last five or six years. Yeah, I bet it's been uh, quite interesting. Um, Grant, so you have a background in environmental engineering, if I'm correct? Uh, my degree is in environmental engineering, uh, but the program I went through was a heavy civil uh, program. So I specialized in environmental, but uh, I've got that, that fundamental civil engineering background also. Um, did the environmental uh, engineering background come in handy with this project? Uh, it did. So when I initially came to this project, I was the environmental director. Um, and, you know, you look at this and it's you know, a bridge project fundamentally. is, is right. that, That's what's in the title. It's really four projects in one. We've got two ports of entry. We've got the bridge and we've got a connection mm -hmm. to Interstate 75 on the U.S. side. Um, with uh, working in those different jurisdictions and having these ports of entry, there are all kinds of environmental challenges that uh, that I've, uh, I've been able to support and work through. You know, from land acquisition and in uh, cleaning up historic contamination, uh, permitting, uh, and just just even getting air permits to operate the uh, the heating equipment on on both campuses required wow. uh, uh, you know environmental expertise. So. It's really coming in handy, and um, I've worked on both sides of the border. So I'm a licensed engineer in Ontario and Michigan. Um, so this, frankly, this, this project was an ideal fit for uh, for all of the experience I had coming into it. Were there any uh, major decisions that were affected because of the environmental conditions uh, considered by the WDBA? So, you know, the initial work on this project started in the year 2000. So there have been many studies and, and, and a lot of work that was done even, even before we let uh, the contract for this P3. Um, so in 2009, leading into early 2010, environmental studies were completed on both sides of the border. Mm -hmm. So doing a cross-border environmental study involved uh, Ontario, Michigan, Canadian federal government and the U.S. federal government. So very comprehensive environmental studies were completed with 450 conditions identified wow. between the two of them. Um, so there, the a number of uh, a number of environmental requirements were incorporated into the project. Uh, one of them includes not having the piers for the bridge in water. So one of the reasons this will be the longest cable stay bridge in North America is that the piers are located completely on land. Uh, that's partially uh, to minimize the impact to the waterway uh, from an ecological point of view, but also to protect against navigation hazards. So uh, the ships can go by without uh, without any structures in the water. Wow. And it's two and a half kilometers long, right? Uh, in total, uh, with, the, with the main span uh, being just over 800 meters. So the main span uh, on a cable stay governs the height of the towers, and, and really that's the measure of of, of the the size of a, of a cable stay bridge, but two and a half kilometers total because you've got to get from the uh, the Canadian port of entry to the U.S. port of entry. Can you just really quickly uh, describe a cable stay bridge versus a susp uh, suspension bridge, for example? So the cable stay bridge has that distinct uh, um, uh, 
uh, sail shape to it. So the cables are at an angle from the tower down to down to the bridge. Um, so you end up with a much taller tower, but you've got that that iconic, that really attractive look of, of the angled cables. Uh, with a, a uh, suspension bridge, you will still have piers um, that hold up the suspension cable, but then you'll have very heavy uh, anchor piers at the end. In this case, uh, because we have a cable stay bridge, they were able to construct the back of the bridge, the backspan, before heading over water. Um, so that's one of, one of the benefits is you can build from the tower out. It, was that one of the main benefits or main reasons to go with this type of bridge? Um, it, or is it uh, aesthetics? Is it environmental motivations? So fundamentally, when we bid this project, uh, every, all of the, uh, uh, the bidders could pro, uh, offer up a suspension bridge or a cable stay bridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, they all presented a cable stay bridge. Uh, we suspected that'd be the case because it really comes down to economics at, at this length. Um, it was just more right. economical to uh, to construct this type of bridge, um, but as a consequence, you do get a very attractive, uh, iconic shape to the, both the towers and the uh, and the stays. This podcast is brought to you by Dozer, an online marketplace for heavy equipment rentals across North America. Partnering with thousands of rental houses, Dozer provides contractors with access to local suppliers, transparent pricing, and mobile ordering. Go to dozer.com to find your next heavy equipment rental. That's D-O-Z-R.com. Seeing as you've been on this project, I'm, I'm sorry, I forget. It was either seven or eight years now. Have you seen a lot of changes? Um, you were talking earlier about you know all the different environmental impacts and uh, conditions that were out there. Has, has much changed on the project since it started? Oh, it's been significant changes on the project. Uh, when I started, uh, we were still uh, uh, executing some preparatory contracts. They you know, typically are known as early work contracts to move utilities, to uh, uh, prepare land, uh, uh, put some uh, wick drains and portions of land on the Canadian side to encourage settlement. Um, so when I first came here, there were there were empty land. There were also buildings in, in, on portions of the land that had to be removed uh, wow. in preparation for uh, uh, for construction. So um, it is, you know, the, the 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 landscape on the two ports of entries has changed significantly since I started here uh, through the demolition and all the preparatory work. But it's um, it's amazing to see the, the the difference, and it's always fun to go back and look at those aerial photos and see what we what, what we started with and, and uh, what it looks like now. I bet, um, <clears throat> yeah, the aerial photos must be amazing. How how much equipment is involved uh, on both sides of the border for a project like this? Uh, dozens and dozens of pieces of equipment. So, in the case of of, uh, of this project, the um, Bridging North America, our private partner. Uh, we'll have cranes, uh, you know, a couple dozen cranes at various locations to move things around. But then you get all the equipment that the subcontractors bring in. So you've got uh, you've got dump trucks, you've got uh, uh, excavation equipment. Um, it changes on a, on a on a daily basis, but there is tremendous amount of equipment and and uh, thousands of people involved too to, to construct something this size. So back to you know this like cross-border project or the fact that it's cross-border does all of the 
equipment originate on each side of the border and then stay on the, on that side? Um, I, I guess similar question with supplies. Do many supplies come from one country and move into the other, or uh, are they sourced in their own countries? Um, so the equipment itself would come from, you know, it, it comes from various sources, but typically when it lands on either the U.S. or the Canadian side, that's where it resides for the duration of the project. They don't ship uh, major pieces of equipment across the border. Mm-hmm. Uh, currently, we have two very large cranes at the at the tip of the bridge being constructed over the water, one on the U.S. side, one on the Canadian side. Uh, same with the tower cranes, there's individual cranes. Um, so the, you know, that kind of equipment usually is uh, is just placed in, in one country or another. Uh, as far as materials go, uh, steel on this project can only be sourced from Canada or the U.S. Uh, we got a waiver uh, to uh, buy America uh, because mm-hmm. the Federal Highways is involved in, in, uh, on the project on the U.S. side, and typically they have a buy America requirement. In this case, we could buy steel or BNA could buy steel from uh, from anywhere in Canada or the U.S., and many other supplies can come from multiple sources. So for the bridge, for example, um, the steel uh, for the bridge is all coming from Can-Am, uh, a factory located uh, near Quebec. And they've got a number of other satellite factories, but the primary uh, factories in Quebec, and that's all shipped to the site. But the precast concrete panels for the bridge are being, uh, being cast uh, in uh, just outside of Detroit. So we've got an example of the bridge where you've got you've got materials coming from both sides of the border um, and uh, being placed. Wow, um, <clears throat> sounds like a huge amount of complication. And same with the labor. I, I know we talked about you know does uh, are are you know workers or employees moving from one side to the other? Is it? Most of the the labor would stay on their own side or yeah. in their own country. Yeah. Most of the labor will stay in their own country. Um, they use unionized workforces on on both sides, so the locals uh, will supply uh, the the trades as needed. Uh, right, and that that is largely separated. How um, how does weather affect a construction project like this? Um, you know, it must be just dreadfully cold in the wintertime. Um, so around here, it, it can be dreadfully cold. It can it can thaw. You know, we, we've got a variety of, depending on the winter, we've got a, a, a wide variety of weather. Um, the, the contractor uses a something called a winter schedule that takes into account that there, there, there are going to be a number of days during any given week during winter months uh, that they can't be productive. And the biggest mm-hmm. impact to weather right now on the project is on bridge construction. So once the wind picks up, uh, the cranes cannot operate. And without the cranes operating, you can't progress uh, on construction. But that's been factored into the overall schedule. Right. So does the project kind of sit idle for a week at a time if you, you know you get a, a storm blowing through? Um, so you would have portions of the project. So you might not have bridge construction on the front of it, but you will still have work going on. So they'll just move the crews to uh, uh, to activities that aren't wind critical. Uh, in the case of the buildings at this point, the buildings will all be enclosed going right. into the winter. So uh, internal, internal work can continue. Um, obviously, concrete work gets suspended for, for a period of time right. because it's... Uh, it's very costly and, and somewhat risky to place the concrete and make sure you get the quality that we're requiring. I've, uh, 
you know, I've come from a much smaller construction background and landscaping and paid a lot of attention to weather, but probably not as much as it would impact this. And I'm curious, what would be the longest expected delay due to wind? Um, have never had to watch wind that closely. Um, we've never had anything, say, going into a, a week or more, uh, but it really depends on the you know, if we get if we get certain conditions around here, you might get wind for for a period of days. That's the uh, the importance of having a reasonable winter schedule is that uh, and over the period over the duration of the winter, uh, they they've predicted that there'll be X number of days per week that uh, that they can't right. work and it all averages out. And then during the summer, similar similar in the summer, you predict. Having some days where you're rained out, uh, but over the over the duration, especially a project this long, it works out. So, what happens when the bridge is completed? Are there standard maintenance schedules to monitor through its lifetime? Uh, the bridge is going to have an intelligent monitoring system. Uh, so, so some aspects of the bridge performance will be monitored on an ongoing basis. Um, the stays, the tension, the stays can be inspected. In a bridge like this, has a, uh, a biannual uh, inspection requirements. So, one of the one of the interesting design aspects of this bridge, it's it's got fact, uh, fracture critical uh, beams installed into it. So you've got if you have I mean, very unlikely chance that you've got a, a crack in say an edge girder. Uh, mm -hmm. There are other there are other structural members that will take on that load. Uh, because of that, uh, it only has to be fully inspected every two years. But we're talking about a full inspection of the bridge by by somebody that's licensed to do that. Um, and that'll be done likely from both MDOT, uh, because the bridge is is uh, certified to uh, to meet design in two jurisdictions, as well as Transport Canada. Wow. In similar uh, kind of topic, we see that there's just a ton of resources on the website about the project timeline, studies, just about everything. Is this the most transparent project you've uh, ever been part of? Oh, absolutely. So, in addition to the information that's on the uh, on the website, uh, our communications and stakeholder group has a, a quarterly meeting, one on the U.S. side and one on the Canadian side, and those are public meetings. Um, the all of the obligations for uh, related to the environmental studies I mentioned earlier, those are all being tracked. Um, and you know, our our team is is out there in the community all the time uh, we've got a 20 million dollar community benefit program that is specifically done, designed to to uh, compensate um, uh, local communities on either side of the border so really the the areas that are directly impacted by construction um, and you know the the community benefit program is an award-winning program so we really think that the the outreach and uh, and work with the communities is uh, is uh, unique and, and done really really well on this project. Do you happen to know um, how many uh, employees uh, or jobs were created on this? It must have been hundreds. Um, so at this point, this summer, so we've been tracking this this off and on. This summer, we we peaked somewhere around twenty three hundred on site between the, wow. the two sides, uh, and I believe we've had over ten thousand people come through orientation training. So that means they could have come here and, and performed the job for a short period of time, or or extend you know been here a, a longer time. We just uh, completed ten million 
person hours worked. Wow. So it's a uh, significant effort to, uh, to complete a project of this size. That's so incredible. Um, yeah, it's just amazing. Um, thank you so much for, uh, for sharing uh, all of this with us. I have one more question we always ask. Um, do you have a, a favorite piece of equipment? I, I do, uh, and I've learned to love it. The, the The tower crane has become my favorite piece of equipment since working on this this, uh, really? this project. When you have a piece of equipment that can actually uh, lift itself up and insert another section, and, and then yeah, uh, uh, you know, build up, and it just it, it just by itself it can just just uh, just help construct itself. Um, combine that with the height of it. You know, it's 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 the tower cranes are at their top height right now of about eight hundred meters. Wow. Um, and then you look at just that strike. It's, it's a relatively simple concept for a tower crane, but it just performs such a mm. such a significant role on the project. And then you've got the poor operator that's got to climb up a. They don't have to climb up from the bottom. They 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 reach it from part way up the tower. Um, but when they've got to climb up into that uh, the booth and run that thing for the day, it's uh, it's it's an amazing role to have. Um, the tower operator, crane operator, uh, everybody respects them because they're the one that's delivering that material. Everybody at the top of the tower needs to do their job. Have you ever uh, been able to go up one before? I have not. I, no. <laughs> I don't know if I, I don't know if my uh, my legs would would carry me up that far, and I don't know if uh, I'm pretty good with heights, but I don't know if I'm that good with heights. <laughs> Yeah, similar. Huge amount of respect for those operators. I'm not sure if I could uh, get myself up there. <laughs> well, this uh, this has been great. Thank you so much for joining us again on the Building Builders podcast. Um, really excited to share this with uh, with all of our followers and uh, appreciate your time today. Yep, anytime. I'm happy to talk about this project. It's one of my favorite things to do is, is talk about all the great things on this project. I bet. So much to be proud of. It's awesome. Thanks again. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode with Grant about the Gordie Howe International Bridge, how the project has evolved over its lifetime, and what the team is doing to bring this project to a close. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also follow us on social media and watch all of our episodes on YouTube, and be sure to subscribe there as well. All links to Grant, including his LinkedIn and the Gordie Howe International Bridge website are provided in the description of this episode, as are all of our social media links. Thanks again for tuning in, and we look forward to having you back for our next episode.